You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ben Franklin's World is a production of Colonial Williamsburg Innovation Studios. I think if we don't do that work of allowing Black people's stories to include that full range of human experience, I think we end up dehumanizing them again in some other way. Welcome to episode 378 of Ben Franklin's World, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn more about how the people and events of our early American past have shaped the present day world we live in. And I'm your host, Liz Covart. When we study the history of Black Americans, especially in the early American period, we often tend to focus on slavery and the slave trades. But focusing solely on slavery can really hinder our ability to see that, like all early Americans, Black Americans were multidimensional people who led complicated lives and lived a full range of experiences that were worth living and are definitely worth talking about. Tara Bynum, an assistant professor of English and African American Studies at the University of Iowa and the author of Reading Pleasures, Black Living in Early America, joins us to explore the lives of four early American Black writers, Phyllis Wheatley, John Morant, James Albert Uncashaw Groniosaw, and David Walker. Now, during our exploration, Tara reveals information about the lives of Wheatley, Morant, Groniosaw, and Walker, and the three-dimensional lives that they led, ways religion influenced the lives and writings of these four authors, and what brought Phyllis Wheatley, John Morant, James Groniosaw, and David Walker joy, and why their joy is worth considering as we try to better understand the early American past. But first, have you taken the Ben Franklin's World listener survey yet? The Colonial Williamsburg Innovation Studios team and I want to hear from you and what you like or dislike about this podcast. We'd also like to get to know you better so that we can better serve you with this show and with the episodes we produce. To take our listener survey and to help us out, visit benfranklinsworld.com survey. That's benfranklinsworld.com survey. And thank you for your help. Our guest is an assistant professor of English and African-American studies at the University of Iowa. She's a writer and scholar with research expertise in early African-American histories before 1800. And she's the author of the book, Reading Pleasures, Everyday Black Living in Early America. Welcome to Ben Franklin's World, Tara Bynum. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Now, in Reading Pleasures, Tara investigates the interior lives of four Black Americans the famed poet Phyllis Wheatley, James Albert Uncasaw Groniosaw, who was a Methodist and former enslaved person, the Methodist minister John Morant, and the anti-slavery activist David Walker. Tara, would you tell us a bit about these men and Phyllis Wheatley and what drew you to their histories? I think it goes back in time for me, probably about 20 years now, to a graduate seminar that I took. You know, I think it was my first introduction into early Black writing or 18th century Black writing that wasn't just about Wheatley. And I think it opened my eyes in new and different ways to the very possibility and certainty of Black writing. And I think it's kind of out of that graduate seminar that also introduced me to the Evans Digital Database, as it was called then, and a whole host of kind of other Black writers. And I think that these 
before David Walker being my 19th century interloper kind of bubbled up to the top in part because they are not necessarily obscure. Of course, Wheatley and Walker are probably the most widely known, but Marin and Graniosa have been published in anthologies in other places that would suggest some level of them being in the kind of canon of early African-American writing. And what I wanted to do was kind of address those sorts of canonical and kind of popular early African-American writers and to think about how they talk about joy and good feeling. Because I think I also learned by way of that graduate seminar that they were, in fact, talking about these ideas alongside many other ideas as well. It's getting a sense of what caused joy and good feelings for these four authors that you talk about. Is that what you mean by the idea of interior lives? The interior life, in my view, is the seat of where the joy and the good feeling happen. So they're not necessarily synonymous, but I think that the interior life, the inside life, is where the feelings live. And so I think there are a host of feelings there. But what I was most interested in was the joy, the good feelings, the pleasures, kind of broadly defined, that happen in that interior space. Reading Pleasures is a very interesting book because it really is about all the things that mattered and made life worth living for both enslaved and free Black American men and women. Tara, you mentioned that in the graduate seminar where you learned about the different possibilities of Black writing, that you studied different Black writers. And yet, when we think about Black Americans in the early American period, we know that they're one of the most challenging groups to research because they didn't leave a lot of writing behind. In fact, there were laws to prevent Black people from obtaining literacy. So would you tell us about your research process and something about how much Black writing is left for us to look at and study from the early American period? So I think that if we are comparing, I don't know, Phyllis Wheatley to an Adams from Massachusetts, then we would have to sit in a place of lack. But I think that there's still a lot of writing left behind by Wheatley. I think about John Marin as well. John Marin has a journal that's published. John Marin has his narrative to like there's an ordination sermon. There is extant material that I would argue kind of offers us quite a bit to think through. Graniosa has the narrative and there might be more. David Walker, too, has the appeal, but he also has a couple other sorts of documents associated with him. So I think that I am realizing the extent to which I need to be mindful of making the comparison of these Black writers to much more popular and white names of founders. Sure, those founders may have a lot more, but I am hesitant to suggest that there is a lack of information or a lack of material to work with. I think that instead, what I have taken to doing is reading what's there and being willing to take seriously the information that's in front of me instead of kind of wanting the 10,000 linear feet of someone's life, instead paying much closer attention to what they do leave behind. And I also, you know, have started taking seriously the idea that what's not left behind is not actually for me to know. And that that might be an intentional decision on the part of the person whose life I'm in pursuit of. 
So the fact that I don't know how Wheatley and Uber Tanner meet, I would love to know the answer to that question. But it's not for me to know because (laughs) they don't make note of it in a letter and they don't need to make note of it in a letter because they already know the answer to that question. And I think I could play this game with all of the writers that I'm interested in. I would love to know why John Merritt's mother moved the whole family from New York to St. Augustine, Florida in the 1760s. It seems like a curious decision and John Merritt doesn't tell me, but instead of thinking I lack that knowledge because it has not been written down in a way that is legible to me or there is not John Merritt's mother's archive left behind somewhere, instead of kind of lamenting that, I've been wondering, I guess, how much it is that I am supposed to know of that story. And I'm sure John Merritt knows, and I'm sure his mother knows why she made that decision. But neither one of them could anticipate me. And that ends up being my problem, not theirs. Your shift in perspective, the idea that it's really okay not to know every detail about someone's personal life is interesting. It's actually really fascinating because I know myself and my historian colleagues, and we tend to want to know everything about whatever it is that we're researching. And we do tend to view too little information as a lack. And we sit with that because we see it as a detriment. Although I will say that many historians will look at that lack of information as presenting opportunities when they can't find information where they expect to find it. They then look for different types of historical sources so that they can build context around an issue, an action or a person that they're studying so they can make informed speculation as to how someone may have felt, thought or acted. So thinking from your viewpoint that what we have is still a wealth of information is just that's a really new way of thinking, at least for me as a historian. They absolutely left us quite a bit of writing. You know, I think that my willingness to sit with the idea that something is not my business is a relatively newer practice for me because I think where literary criticism or literary history intersects with history as a discipline is that I think we all want to know the answer to our historical questions. We all want to get that information. And, you know, I think that historians have been helpful in offering sort of context that might allow me to, as you say, make informed speculation. But I think that there are, and this is what I've been wrestling with quite a bit, I think that there are places where there's something that is unknowable simply because it's not our business to know. So going back to the example of Wheatley and Uber Tanner and how they meet, because they're already friends, they don't need to rehash how they meet. I think The question for me always is like, how often with a friend of yours do you go over how you met? That's an exceedingly rare occurrence and probably one that you're not putting in writing either. So I think it's those moments that I see where I realize like, yes, I absolutely want to know the answer to this. And it's the case that I can't know it likely because they already know it. (laughs) And they don't need to talk about it over and over again, or maybe even one time, because it would be weird to do that. So I guess I would clarify that it's not so much that I don't want to know, but I think what I've been wrestling with is if I can't know, what is the information that I can get from that? And I think sticking with this example, one bit of information is that 
I'm not Wheatley and Tanner's friend. So because I'm not, there are things that are going to be unknowable to me. And I have to be okay with that as a researcher, even if I'm grumbling about it. Right. We are always outsiders trying to glean the inner details of someone's personal life. And as you say, some personal details are just meant to be personal and private. It's tricky. Natara, you research the things that matter to these four Black Americans. And I wonder if you would tell us what you found in your research. What made Phyllis Wheatley and David Walker and John Morant and James Albert Unkersaw, Groniosaw happy? What were the things that brought them joy? So I think that what kind of began to stick out to me as I kind of read through these texts over and over again was first that they were at times talking about what delighted them, what they enjoyed. And it was different because they are, in fact, different people. So, you know, I think about Wheatley and Uber Tanner, their correspondence. Wheatley talks about the joy that she feels receiving those letters from her friend Uber Tanner. You've got kind of John Merritt and James Albert Ukasa Graniosa, both delighting in their Christian faith and in knowing that theirs is a God who will save them. And theirs is a God who's bigger than any man. And then there's David Walker's appeal. And David Walker is interesting in part because he's so often not associated with joy. People know David Walker for his righteous anger. They know David Walker because he's the man with the manicules and the pointed fingers, the exclamation marks that make clear as Marcy Denius notes that he is angry. And also it's the case that his anger is very much intentional. It's meant to get the colored brethren that he references to mobilize so that they can make this country anew. And in so doing, access the joy that comes with the better version of the United States, the better version that does not rely on slavery and the enslavement of Black people. So I think that for each of them, joy looks a little bit different. And for all of them, joy is something that they are talking about, engaging with, and delighted in some respects to represent. I know we're anxious to dig into the details of these individual figures' lives, but first, Tara, you mentioned Christian faith was an element of joy that united all four of these figures. And I wonder if you would tell us how and why Christianity created meaning and joy for these different individuals. Well, I think that Christianity offers them joy because they are believers, because they understand kind of the basic tenets of Christianity to be true, that Jesus died so they can live. And I think that, as Catherine Clay Bassard notes, Christianity offers them a rhetorical meeting place. It offers a language with which to understand and make meaning from their experiences. And I think what was important for me was to not downplay their religion, as can happen sometimes. I think it's certainly been the case that folks have been hesitant to talk about kind of Christianity in the context of Black people, in part because the idea is that Christianity has been imposed upon them and this imposition was to their detriment. I think what actually seemed to be true with this four is that Christianity was very much a part of not only their identities, but also how they made sense of the world. Graniosa and Merritt know that they can make it because they are saved by God. 
And I think their conversion narratives are to that end, to show and demonstrate to their imagined and I think Christian audience that they know God that well and that they know that God saves. And I think about kind of Wheatley and Uber Tanner and the fact that they seem to worship together on the page. And of course, David Walker, he knows that his community of Black people will be successful in remaking the United States because he trusts that God is behind them. So Christianity is keenly important to these writers and it helps them make meaning. It helps them make sense of the world that they are living in. And it helps them create community with those around them. Tara, it also seems like another thing that brought Wheatley, Walker, Graniosa, and Marant Joy was a shared passion and affinity for reading and writing. Would you tell us how these individuals developed their interests and love for reading and writing and about the different types of reading and writing that they did? Liz, I think that's a great question. And I have no idea. I have no idea exactly how the love for reading and writing happens. I know that they do it. I know that they definitely make the choice to put their words in print, but I don't know actually the origin story in any specific detail. So someone like John Marin is educated in St. Augustine, Florida. There have been a number of discussions about kind of Wheatley's access to reading and writing the Wheatley family makes sure to educate her. And, you know, she's understood to be quite precocious. There's a copy book that's attributed to her as well. But the actual sort of how they commit to the form or the practice of reading and writing, I don't I don't actually know. Okay, now that we have some information about Tara's study, we can now go deeper into each individual's life. As Tara has been telling us, Phyllis Wheatley corresponded with an enslaved woman in Newport, Rhode Island, named Ober Tanner. Tara, would you tell us about Tanner, what we know about her life, and what we know of the relationship that you found in the writings between Ober Tanner and Phyllis Wheatley? So Ober Tanner, I think, is a fascinating woman. Ober Tanner is an enslaved woman, much like Wheatley. She lives largely in Newport, Rhode Island. She's enslaved to James Tanner and Hannah Hazard Tanner. She eventually marries a man named Barry Collins. She becomes the president of the Women's Auxiliary of the Free African Union Society. She dies in 1835, which is about 50 years after Phyllis Wheatley. So she has a robust and lengthy life at some point when Newport is under siege from the British. She relocates to Worcester, Massachusetts. What I don't know is exactly how Wheatley and Tanner meet, but their extant correspondence starts in 1772. And their correspondence is one-sided at this point, or in what's left, it's one-sided. So Wheatley's letters to Tanner that span seven years from 1772 to 1779. What's interesting is that in those letters, one can get a glimpse of Tanner. So Wheatley is sure to thank Tanner for Tanner's prayers about Wheatley's health. I think that their kind of mutual interest and commitment to God is also related. Tanner sells Wheatley's books of poems in and around Newport. She collects the money for those books and sends that money to Wheatley 
you know, I think that there's also the stuff that I wish I had a way to kind of name in distinct ways, like the stuff that goes unmentioned, but it's flagged between friends. So I've been thinking a lot about a letter from Wheatley to Tanner that kind of makes note of an unnamed man. And it's clear that the man knows Tanner, but he's, for whatever reason, unnamed. And I think that they know why Wheatley has not named him. But I don't know why Wheatley has chosen not to name him, even though both women seem to know who this man is. And I think that that is, in some respects, a feature of friendship. Friends don't need to always say in explicit detail whatever the thing is because they already know it. So I think Tanner is kind of this interesting figure that we know because of her relationship to Wheatley. And I would also kind of make note of the fact that Tanner keeps Wheatley's letters for nearly 60 years. She ensures that they are passed on to someone who then kind of passes them on to someone else who then gets them to the Massachusetts Historical Society. So she's a fascinating figure and a fascinating figure in relation to Wheatley, in part because she helps to lift Wheatley out of that frontispiece. She helps to lift Wheatley out of, I would say, Wheatley's own singularity as this first Black woman poet to publish. Now, I think oftentimes Wheatley is framed as the only, and yet she is in conversation with another Black woman and is friends with her as well. So I think Uber Tanner and Wheatley together, I think, make clear that Wheatley is not by herself and maybe not unique. As a scholar of the American Revolution, I admit to thinking about what Wheatley and Tanner's relationship might be able to reveal to us about Black Northern women's experiences during the Revolution, because both women were forced to flee their homes at different times because of British attacks, sieges, and occupations. So Tara, I have to ask, were you able to glean any information about how the revolution looked through these Black women's eyes? Oh my gosh, Liz, how much time do we have? (laughs) I'm obsessed with this question because it's one that took me a while to get to, if I'm honest, in part because, you know, I am approaching these texts from the literary side of the English versus history perspective. And so it took me a while to think about the fact that Wheatley's poems are published in 1773, that Wheatley lives down the street from the Boston Massacre, that she is not in her own Wheatley bubble when these activities happen. I found out recently that her book of poems is on the same ship with the tea that ends up in the Boston Harbor. Like she is at minimum a witness to what is happening and yet is, I think, often not part of the story of the American Revolution. Like somehow her writing and her Black womanist separates her from these activities that fundamentally reshape her life. She too ends up a refugee when Boston is under siege and she relocates to Providence. And there's a letter, a February 14th, 1776 letter that kind of hints at and maybe speaks directly to Wheatley's experience of the war and also Uber Tanner's experience of the war. So Wheatley is writing from Providence to Tanner in Newport. Newport is in crisis because I think it's Captain James Wallace's fleet that keeps harassing Rhode Islanders from the Narragansett Bay. And Wheatley talks about 
the bad situation that her friend is in. And I had an audience once ask me what the bad situation was, almost as if it might have been an interpersonal bad situation. And maybe it was, but it also might have been the case that like the British are bombing Newport all the time. And, you know, I think that there's also the reality that Wheatley is now based in Providence. So the shortest answer that I can offer, even though this is currently my favorite rabbit hole to go down, is that I do think that Wheatley and Tanner, if we pay attention to their correspondence, do offer us a kind of glimpse into the experiences of Black women during the Revolutionary War. And both of them, because Wheatley is based in Boston and Tanner is based in Newport, both of them are directly affected. Both of them end up displaced. Tanner goes to Worcester. Like I said, Wheatley goes to Providence. And they figure out how to find one another, which is also interesting. And Wheatley makes note of their locations in many of the letters. So it's also interesting to think about kind of tracking their movements alongside of the war's activities and kind of imagining their choices as a result and the choices that happen thereafter. So I think that that's also another kind of rabbit hole that I have ended up down as well. Well, when you turn that rabbit hole into a second book, I know you'll have a large audience, myself included, who would love to read about what this correspondence can tell us about Black women's experiences in the North during the American Revolutionary War. Oh, my God. Ah, that's exciting. It is really exciting. Now, John Morant is not someone we often hear about in our study of early America, and yet he plays a prominent role in Tara's book, Reading Pleasures. Tara, we need a moment to talk about our episode sponsor. When we get back, would you please tell us about John Morant? If you're a fan of this podcast, then you're also likely a fan of investigating the past through the lives of real people. Knowing that Uber Tanner was an enslaved woman who could read and write and who corresponded with and befriended the famed poet Phyllis Wheatley added details to what we know about life in early America. And those details about Uber Tanner also made history more fun for us to study and interact with. Because before we heard Tara tell us about Tanner, we may have only come across her name on a census record where she may have appeared as just one of Newport, Rhode Island's 9,209 residents in 1774. Now, podcast downloads have that same effect. The Colonial Williamsburg Innovation Studios team and I can tell how many people downloaded each episode. And those downloads can tell us broadly what country or state you're listening from. But aside from that, we imagine you as just one of a number of listeners. Help us get to know you better. Rather than being a download number, take our listener survey and help us get to know you as a person. In the survey, you can tell us what you like about Ben Franklin's world, what you dislike, and what features you'd like to see us add or change on the show. The Innovation Studios team and I produce this podcast for you. So please visit benfranklinsworld.com survey and tell us how we can serve you better. Let us know your thoughts about the show. You'll find the survey at benfranklinsworld.com survey. That's benfranklinsworld.com survey. In fact, if you're listening to this on an internet-connected computer, tablet, or smartphone, press pause right now and take the survey at benfranklinsworld.com survey. It's okay, press pause. You won't miss anything because I'll be here waiting for you. Thank you for taking our survey. Now on with the show. Tara, who is John Marant and how did he come to embody the movement of the African diasporas? So John Marant is such a curious figure. 
he is born free in New York. His mother takes the family from New York to St. Augustine, Florida. And St. Augustine is not far from a free Black community. And from there, things get disrupted around, I think, the end of the Seven Years' War. So his mother, instead of going to Cuba like so many other folks did, they end up in Georgia first and then settle in Charleston, South Carolina. And what follows in his narrative is his own conversion after hearing George Whitefield preach and his journeying kind of to get closer and closer to Christ and also like his own kind of move towards ministry. And he kind of ends up in the forest happening upon a Cherokee village. And at 14, he's able to convert the Cherokee community there in a way that kind of, I would say, sounds a bit more like a revision of a biblical story than real life. But that might be a conversation for another day. And he journeys a bit more, ends up kind of fighting for the British, lands himself in England and gets ordained with the help of the Countess of Huntington and kind of leaves us with his narrative and a journal of his ministry in Nova Scotia, which is also a place that he ends up after the war. So the other interesting thing, kind of thinking about the Revolutionary War and this revolutionary era is that we kind of say that Marin is a loyalist. He is not team American colonies. So as a result of that, he ends up in Nova Scotia and eventually relocates yet again to England. It is really interesting that we're talking about Phyllis Wheatley and Uber Tanner and John Morant back to back because these were all people who found joy in reading and writing and with each other. But they also seem to have been people who were in need of joy, given the fact that there was the American War for Independence being fought. And as we know, wars bring a lot of hardship. In fact, we talked about how both Phil Sweetley and Uber Tanner were displaced. And it sounds like the same thing happened with John Moran. Yeah, I think that that is spot on. And I think that what feels increasingly apparent to me kind of after doing the research for this book is how important community ends up being to the historical actors in the book and what they are in some respects, doing in small and much larger ways is building a community, connecting and supporting that community as well. Now, one event that we've been talking about, but we haven't named directly, is the First Great Awakening, which was a period of religious revitalization, which took place in British North America between the 1730s and 1770s. Tara, would you tell us how Wheatley and Morant and maybe even Tanner got caught up in the First Great Awakening and What kind of impact the First Great Awakening had on their lives? I think about George Whitefield coming to the U.S. to preach, and he stops in Charleston, where John Maron is, and that's how John Maron ends up kind of having his threshing floor conversion experience. And Wheatley writes her poem on the death of George Whitefield. So I think that while my particular research didn't have me dive deeply into the sort of correlation between the Great Awakening and how Graniosa and Marin and Wheatley find Christianity. I think that their awareness of what's happening is clear. And I think the clearness comes in the form of an elegy and also in Marin's very sort of direct experience with Whitefield. That's an interesting observation that it wasn't just 
the religious movement of the First Great Awakening that impacted your subject's lives, but an actual individual, George Whitfield, who was a constant thread throughout three of your subjects' lives. Yeah, and I think it's in part, I would imagine, because or maybe inspires their relationship with the Countess of Huntington. That's another good point. Would you talk about Wheatley, Morant, and Graniosa's relationships with the Countess of Huntington? Because you've talked about her earlier, and it seems, as you mentioned, that all three of these individuals had a connection with her. So who was the Countess of Huntington, and how did she impact the lives of Wheatley, Morant, and Graniosa? She's definitely the patron of 18th century Black writing. She ends up being kind of critically important to the publication of Graniosa's narrative, Merritt's narrative. Wheatley goes to London and wants to meet her. I don't think she gets to, but that's on her to-do list. I think that the Countess is also kind of critically important to the support of Methodist churches as well. So I think that she is maybe in the context of early African-American literary history, like the not lesser known, but she might not get as much of the shine. And yet she, I think, is kind of critically important to the actual publication of these works. And also in, you know, kind of helping someone like John Merritt get ordained as a minister. So she's a key part of this history. It sounds like we may have to do a future episode on her because, as you say, the Countess of Huntington did become a patron of early Black American authors, and it would be nice to know more about her. There are a number of them that don't make it into my book. I think about Joe Rezik's work on David Margate, who is kind of connected to the Countess as well, and there are other Black figures, too. Now, what about David Walker? He's not someone who fits into the First Great Awakening, and his work really takes place in the 19th century. So would you tell us who David Walker was, about the life he lived, and how he fits into your story of Black people finding joy in reading and writing and in community building, too? So David Walker is my 19th century interloper, and he snuck in there. He still works, but he definitely is doing something a bit different because he's publishing his appeal in 1829, so many decades after the kind of publication dates for Wheatley, Graniosa, and Marin, you know, those being around 1773, 1774, and 1785, respectively. Walker is a Black man born in Wilmington, North Carolina, by various twists and turns ends up in Boston, where he, I think, has many different kinds of jobs, including working as a subscription agent for Freedom's Journal and also kind of publishing and self-publishing his pamphlet. And I think that what struck me about Walker was that his was a book that I had read many, many times, but I had missed the punchline. I had missed the fact that there is joy that will come after affecting this sort of change in the United States that would end slavery and kind of make the nation socially and politically and economically better. So I guess I imagine David Walker as like a useful way to complicate the sort of one dimensional story of his rage. And, you know, I think sometimes righteous anger can be the kind of fun part of Walker. But I think in focusing so much on the rage and the anger, I think we miss his larger punchline. And 
I guess I wanted nuance the way that we read Walker and see him in the multifaceted ways that I think he must have existed as a real person in the world. As Tara mentioned, in 1829, David Walker wrote a famous pamphlet called Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. Tara, for those of us who have not had a chance to read Walker's pamphlet or haven't read it in a while, would you tell us a bit about it and about Walker's righteous anger? David Walker writes this appeal in 1829, and it goes through three editions between September of 1829 and its final edition in 1830. And it's structured like the U.S. Constitution. There is a preamble and four articles. And the preamble and the four articles all wrestle with some aspect of the wretched condition of Black people in the United States. And David Walker, in an expert way, kind of makes the case for why Black people are the most wretched, abject set of beings, as he says, those are his words, who've ever lived. And that's not the end of the story, of course. But instead, in this preamble and for articles, he kind of lays the scene for how to get out of that wretched and abject situation, most notably connected to slavery, and make the world and the United States in particular a much better place. It's interesting because I think if you look at the first edition, Walker has his key points. He has his citations. He also, as I mentioned before, like is very intentional with his grammar, his placement of pointed fingers or manicules. He wants his pamphlet to be read and to be read in a certain way. And every edition, he expands the examples. He expands his argument. He ensures that the reader will take note and even better note of what he said before. So it's kind of funny to look from the first edition to the third and to see how much he expands this pamphlet in order to prove his point. And I think it is expertly done. I think it is compelling. And I think it is a real opportunity to see and to glimpse one 19th century Black man's perspective on how to radically change the U.S. And when we think about the reach of this pamphlet, David Walker is able to accomplish so much. And he dies in 1830. Interestingly enough, I think he's in his 30s when he dies. So he's not an old man by any stretch. And yet I think that there has been enough research now that kind of connects his pamphlet to various revolts and uprisings that fundamentally change the U.S. history to follow. And just one example of Walker's deliberateness is his use of the word citizens. He even uses that word in his title, Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. And this is important because Americans in the early period did debate whether African-Americans and Black people could ever count as citizens of the United States. Yeah, and I think this is where his choice of structure becomes that much more important. The pamphlet is structured like the U.S. Constitution, and I doubt that's a coincidence. There are also kind of very lengthy, sustained engagements with Thomas Jefferson as well. You know, I think he is imagining this document as kind of yet another founding document. And it's also interesting that he chose to model the pamphlet after the United States Constitution instead of the Declaration of Independence, which was a document written to be read out loud. In contrast, the Constitution. Well, 
I've actually never heard anybody read that document out loud. (laughs) But, you know, I think that the Declaration of Independence doesn't declare a nation. It just says we don't want to be a part of Britain anymore. The Constitution forms a nation. And I think that that's what Walker is interested in. So, you know, I think it might be (laughs) both radical and ridiculous to think about reading a constitution aloud. And yet I think that what Walker is trying to do is make a nation and to constitute that nation with its citizens. And the Declaration of Independence doesn't do that. It lists grievances. And I think Walker wants to go a step further than just listing out grievances, even though he does some of that. He wants to make a new nation and still call it the United States. Tara, before we move into the time warp, would you tell us why you think it's essential that we research and study the things that mattered and brought joy to early Americans and specifically to early Black Americans? Well, first and foremost, Liz, I think it's fun. I think that's why we need to do it, because we can get our own enjoyment out of it. I also think that when it comes to Black people's stories, it's important to make sure that we are representing the full run of the human experience. And I think that it's important to represent that, you know, not just for a representation's sake, but also because one-dimensional people don't actually exist. We're all complex. We're all capable of the full range of human emotions. And I think if we don't do that work of allowing Black people's stories to include that full range of human experience, I think we end up dehumanizing them again in some other way. I don't want my research to do that. I think that that's part of it. So one, I think it's fun. Two, I think it's important to remember that historical actors, all of them had complicated lives and experiences that are worth telling. And then I think for Black people in particular, it's really important to make sure that we are representing their humanity and not reinforcing the idea that they are not human enough to feel or not human enough to experience anything other than a one-dimensional sort of set of feelings. It's time for the time warp. This is a fun segment of the show where we ask you a hypothetical history question about what might have happened if something had occurred differently or if someone had acted differently. and women you discuss in your book, Reading Pleasures, found meaning in their Christian religion and faith. So in your opinion, what role do you think religion would have played in their lives if the first great awakening of the mid-18th century had never happened? Well, I think that they would not be able to reference George Whitefield. They probably wouldn't have met the Countess of Huntingdon. I do think that they would have found a way to share a common language, a common experience, and to use it to build and make communities. I think that's consistent. So in the real history, they find Christianity. In the time warp, maybe it's not Christianity, but it's some other way to connect, because I think that that's consistent across time if we're talking about human beings, is that we want to connect. We want to know people. We want to have friends. We want to have relationships. And I think that these four are no different in that regard. 
you've certainly piqued our interests in the lives of Walker, Wheatley, Morant, and Graniosaw, so we'll all want to read Reading Pleasures. But it also sounds like you have a lot of different rabbit holes that you're working on. So Tara, which of these rabbit holes are you going down for your next research project? So the new rabbit hole that's my favorite is thinking more about Uber Tanner and what it means that she kept those letters for so long and kept those letters through a war, kept those letters as a refugee, kept those letters as president of the Women's Auxiliary of the Free African Union Society, kept those letters when her husband died and kept those letters until she could give them to Catherine Eads Beecher, Harriet Beecher Stowe's sister-in-law. There's something remarkable about that to me. She doesn't have the help of plastic or archival boxes. And I think there's a story there. And that's the story that I want to figure out how to tell. That's fantastic. We're going to get a new book about some of our questions. (laughs) That's what it's feeling like. We'll see. We'll see. And what's the best way for us to contact you if we have more questions about early Black literary culture or even the joy that people experienced in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. The University of Iowa's English faculty page, where you will find my name, that is probably the best place to find all things related to the work that I'm doing. Tara Bynum, thank you so much for joining us and for introducing us to the reading pleasures enjoyed by these four different African-American writers. Thanks so much for having me. This was a delightful conversation. And I'm super excited that you brought up the Revolutionary War. We'll have to have a whole conversation about it when you're ready. Oh, my God. Don't even get me started. Studying joy is fun. Not only did Tara state this as one of her reasons why we should study joy, but we also had the opportunity to experience that joy firsthand. At least I did, because I really do love talking about the American Revolution and trying to better understand the lives of those who lived during the revolutionary and early American period. So I really did get a lot of joy out of this episode. I hope you did too. Now, studying joy or any other emotion really helps us humanize the real people who lived in early America, because in order to research and understand joy or these other emotions, we really have to try and understand people like Phyllis Wheatley, John Morant, James Groniasaw, and David Walker on a personal level. We need to try and understand them well enough that we can see what brought joy and other emotions into their lives. We often talk about how history is really the study of people and how they've changed or perhaps not changed over time. Taking the time to get to know the people of the past in a personal way, such as through the experiences and work that brought them joy, is one way we can better understand what it was like to live in different time periods. It's also a way that we can humanize the past so that history isn't just the study of different dates and the events that happened on those dates. Trying to understand joy in people's lives helps us see the people of the past as the fully formed humans they were. For example, if David Walker experienced righteous and intense anger with the United States' system and practice of slavery, then we can also see how the desire to build a better United States by ending slavery and creating more equality in early American society would bring him joy. As Tara noted, it's important for us to recognize that the people who lived in early America weren't just the faceless numbers represented on a census record. The people of the past were individuals who experienced the complexities of what it means to be human. They were also individuals who experienced the full range of emotions that we experience today in the present. It's also interesting to consider what our knowledge of the past would be like if we didn't try to understand the full range of experiences and how early Americans experienced their lives. If we only studied people as numbers on a census record or as members of a broad general category, 
then we would risk dehumanizing these very real people. We would risk erasing their lived humanity and reducing each individual into a faceless number. And then how fun would our study of history in the past be if we really didn't have people to get to know and try to understand? You'll find more information about Tara, her book, Reading Pleasures, plus notes, links, and a transcript for everything we talked about today all on the show notes page. benfranklinsworld.com slash 378. Friends tell friends about their favorite podcasts. They also help out their favorite podcasters by taking their listener surveys. Please help out me and the Innovation Studios team by taking our listener survey at benfranklinsworld.com slash survey. That's benfranklinsworld.com slash survey. Production assistance for this podcast comes from my colleagues at Colonial Williamsburg Innovation Studios, Katie Schoenebeck, Ashley Bachnight, and Ian Tonat. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our custom theme music. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. To discover and listen to their other podcasts, visit airwavemedia.com. Finally, who else would you like to know more about? Or perhaps what writing would you like to investigate? Please tell me, Liz at BenFranklinsWorld.com. Ben Franklin's World is a production of Colonial Williamsburg Innovation Studios.